Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. When President Kennedy first announced that we were going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade of the 60s, I was was amazed because uh, we just had so much to learn before we could really uh, take that gigantic step. We'd never even been into Earth orbit at that time, just simply one quick up and down suborbital flight by Alan Shepard. And the idea that we could uh, get into orbit, uh, test all the ideas and all the equipment, learn how to operate in Earth orbit, and then set sail all the way to the moon and do it all within the framework of the decade. That seemed like a tall order. That was Mike Collins speaking of President Kennedy's goal of reaching the moon before 1970. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 203 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Command Module Pilot, Mike Collins. Michael Collins was born on October 31, 1930 in Rome, Italy, where his father, United States Major General James Lawton Collins, was stationed. For the next 17 years of his life, Michael called Rome, Oklahoma, Governor's Island, New York, Puerto Rico, San Antonio, Texas, and Alexandria, Virginia home. While he was in Puerto Rico, he took his first plane ride aboard a Grumman. He studied for two years in the Academia del Perpetuo Socorro in San Juan. After the United States entered World War II, his family moved to Washington, D.C., where Collins attended St. Albans School, from which he graduated in 1958. His mother wanted him to enter into the diplomatic service, but he decided to follow his father, two uncles, brother, and cousin into the armed services. He applied and was accepted to West Point Military Academy in New York, which also had the advantage of being free of tuition and other fees. In 1952, Collins graduated from West Point with a Bachelor of Science degree. He finished 185th out of 527 cadets. As a side note, Collins was in the same class as astronaut Ed White. Michael chose the Air Force for his active service for two reasons. First, the wonder of what the next 50 years might bring in aeronautics, and second, to avoid accusations of nepotism. This was because his uncle, General Joseph Collins, was the chief of staff of the United States Army. At this time, the Air Force Academy was only in its initial construction phase and would not graduate its first class for several years. In the interim, graduates of the Military Academy Naval Academy, and the Merchant Marine Academy were eligible for Air Force commissions. After entering the Air Force, Collins completed flight training at Columbus Air Force Base, Mississippi, 
in the T-6 Texan. He then moved to San Marcos Air Force Base and James Connolly Air Force Base, Texas. His performance earned him a position on the Advanced Day Fighter Training Team at Nellis Air Force Base, flying F-86 Sabres. This was followed by an assignment to the 21st Fighter Bomber Wing at the George Air Force Base, where he learned how to deliver nuclear weapons. He transferred from the 21st when it was relocated to Chalmun Samotin Air Base in France in June 1954. During a NATO exercise in the summer of 1956, Collins was forced to eject from an F-86 after a fire started aft of the cockpit. He was safely rescued and returned to Chalmont Air Force Base, where he had to wait for several hours to be treated because the base's flight surgeon had joined search parties looking for him. Collins met Patricia Finnegan, his future wife, in an officer's mess. She was from Boston, Massachusetts, and was working for the Air Force Service Club. After seeking permission to marry from Finnegan's father and delaying their wedding when Collins was redeployed to West Germany during the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, they married in the summer of 1957. Their first child, a daughter named Kate Collins, was born in 1959 and became a successful actress. She is best known for her role in the soap opera All My Children. Eventually, they would have three children. After Collins was reassigned to the United States, he attended an aircraft maintenance officer course at Chanute Air Force Base, Illinois. He would later describe this school as dismal in his autobiography. Upon completing the course, he was posted to a mobile training detachment and traveled to Air Force Base's training mechanics on the servicing of new aircraft. With the help of his time spent as a member of a mobile training detachment, Collins accumulated over 1,500 hours of flying, the minimum requirement for the United States Air Force Experimental Flight Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base, California. He successfully applied and reported on August 29, 1960, becoming a member of Class 60C, which included future astronauts Frank Borman and Jim Irwin. Following the months of intensive training, Collins was one of the few chosen for a position in fighter operations. The turning point for Michael Collins in his decision to become an astronaut was the Mercury Atlas VI flight of John Glenn on February 20, 1962, and the thought of being able to circle the Earth in 90 minutes. He immediately applied for the second group of astronauts that year. To raise their number, the Air Force sent their best applicants to a charm school. Medical and psychiatric examinations at Brooks Air Force Base, Texas, and interviews at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston followed. In mid-September, Collins found that he had not been accepted, something that was a serious disappointment, even though he did not really expect to be accepted. Collins still rates the second group of nine 
astronauts as the best ever selected by NASA. That same year, the United States Air Force Experimental Flight Test Pilot School became the U.S. Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School. As the Air Force tried to enter into the research of space, Collins applied for a new course offered in the basics of space flights. Other students included Charles Bassett, Edward Givens, and Joe Engel. Along with classwork, they also flew up to about 90,000 feet in F-104 starfighters. As they passed through the top of their huge arc, they would experience a brief period of weightlessness. Finishing this course, he returned to fighter ops in May 1963. At the start of June of 1963, NASA once again called for astronaut applications. Collins went through the same process as with his first application, though he did not take the psychiatric evaluation. Collins was at Randolph Air Force Base, Texas on October 14th when Deke Slayton called and asked if he was still interested in becoming an astronaut. Charlie Bassett was also accepted in the same group, which would be known as the third group. For the third group of astronauts, training began with a 240-hour course of the basics of spaceflight. Fifty-eight hours of this was devoted to geology, something that Collins did not readily understand and in which he never became interested in. At the end, Alan Shepard, who was head of the astronaut office, asked the 14 to rank their fellow astronauts in order they would want to fly with them in space. Collins picked David Scott in the number one position. Which brings us to Project Gemini. Here's a clip of Collins describing the Gemini program. I flew on Gemini 10 with John Young back in 1966. Gemini was a vital link between Mercury and Apollo. To be successful in our landings on the moon scheme, we had to be able to do a rendezvous, and we didn't know how to do rendezvous. Uh, so Gemini's primary uh, job was to work out all the technical details to bring two spacecraft together in Earth orbit. Then, what would happen to the people on board? We didn't know uh, for a, uh, say, an eight-day round trip to the moon, we didn't know what the effects of uh, zero gravity of weightlessness would be. When you got to the moon, you had to go outside, obviously, and walk on the surface, and no one had ever exited a spacecraft before. So the spacewalks of Project Gemini were needed to prove that the spacesuits, the equipment, everything would be okay on the surface of the moon. After this basic training, the third group were assigned specializations, with Collins receiving his first choice of pressure suits and EVA. His job was to monitor the development and act as something of a go-between for the astronaut office and the contractors. As such, he was annoyed when during the secretive planning of Ed White's EVA, he was not involved. In late June 1965, Collins received his first crew assignment as the backup pilot for Gemini 7. He was the first of the 14 to receive a crew assignment, though he would not be the first to fly. That honor went to David Scott on Gemini 8. 
Collins never rated himself with the super athletes of the NASA Astronaut Corps, like his fellow backup crew member Ed White, but he still tried to keep in shape, especially in the run-up to Gemini 7, when he would have been called upon to spend 14 days in space. After the successful completion of Gemini 7, Mike Collins was assigned to the prime crew of Gemini 10 with John Young. Gemini 10's three-day mission called for a rendezvous with two different Agena target vehicles, undertake two EVAs, and perform 15 different experiments. The training went smoothly as the crew learned the intricacies of orbital rendezvous, controlling the Agena, and for Collins, an EVA. For his first EVA, Collins did not leave the Gemini capsule. He stood up through the hatch with a device that resembled a sextant. In his biography, he said he felt at that moment like a Roman god riding the skies in his chariot. For the three-day flight, Collins received $24 in travel reimbursement. Shortly after Gemini 10, Collins was assigned to the backup crew for the second manned Apollo flight with Commander Frank Borman, Command Module Pilot Thomas Stafford, and Collins as Lunar Module Pilot. Along with learning the new Apollo Command Service Module and the Apollo Lunar Module, Collins received helicopter training, as these were thought to be the best way to simulate the landing approach of the Lunar Module. After the completion of Project Gemini, it was decided to cancel the Apollo 2 flight since it would just be a repeat of the Apollo 1 flight. In the process of crews being reassigned, Collins was moved up to the command module pilot position on the Apollo 8 Prime crew with Frank Borman and William Anders. The reason Collins was moved to command module pilot was Deke Slayton decided that the command module pilot should have some spaceflight experience, something that Anders did not have. Three years later, this change would be the reason Collins orbited the moon while Armstrong and Aldrin walked on its surface. Staff meetings were held on Fridays in the astronaut office, and it was here that Collins found himself on January 27th, 1967. Don Gregory was running the meeting in the absence of Alan Shepard, and so it was he who answered the red phone to be informed that there was a fire in the Apollo 1 command module. When the enormity of the situation was ascertained, it fell on Collins to go to the Chaffee house to tell Martha Chaffee that her husband was dead. Following the delays to training as Frank Borman took part in the fire investigation, the crew of what would become Apollo 8 started back. Initially, Apollo 8 would be the first manned flight of the Saturn V on its third launch. They would use the S-4B third stage to boost them into a highly elliptical Earth orbit with a high point of 4,000 miles. Which brings us to Collins' medical problem. During 1968, Collins noticed that his legs were not working as they should. First, during handball games, 
Then, as he walked downstairs, his knee would almost give way. His left leg also had unusual sensations when in hot and cold water. Reluctantly, he sought medical advice, and the diagnosis was a cervical disc herniation, requiring two vertebrae to be fused together. The surgery was performed at Wilford Hall Hospital at Lackland Air Force Base, Texas, and he spent three months in a neck brace. The surgery and recovery prevented Collins from flying on Apollo 8 or 9. But, since Collins had trained for the Apollo 8 flight, he was made a capsule communicator, or CAPCON, for the Apollo 8 flight. As part of the green team, he covered the launch phase up to translunar injection. As Borman, Lovell, and Anders spoke from lunar orbit, Collins listened from mission control and felt a special connection to the events, and a special envy. When Apollo 8 splashed down, Collins stood amid cheers, waving flags, and cigar smoke, and was overcome by emotion. Leaving mission control, he shed his tears in private. The successful completion of the first manned circumlunar flight was followed by the announcement of the Apollo 11 crew of Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. When I was first assigned to the crew of Apollo 11, we really weren't sure what we were going to do. We thought that that would be the first flight to land on the moon, but we were far from certain of that. I just thought there were so many unknowns that I would have given us about a 50-50 chance of, uh, of being the first flight to, to land and return someone safely. As Collins just said, at that time in January 1969, it was not certain Apollo 11 would be the lunar landing crew. It was dependent on the success of Apollo 9 and 10. If things went according to plan, Apollo 11 would be the first lunar landing, but Collins would have the role of staying behind in lunar orbit while his crewmates made history. Collins was fully aware of how people expected him to feel. He told the interviewers with complete honesty that he felt no frustration. He was 99.9% .9 of the way to the moon, and that was fine with him. Here is a clip of Mike Collins explaining his role on Apollo 11. Well, Apollo was designed to be a three-man job, and the third, which I perform, is, uh, is I think, uh, as important, uh, no more so, no less so, than the other two positions. Uh, I think I'd be a fool if I said that I had the, uh, the best seat of the three. On the other hand, I can say with uh, complete candor and with complete honesty that I'm very happy to have the seat which I have and to be doing the job that I intend to do. In joining the crew of Apollo 11, Collins took his place among two men who were in many ways his opposite. Collins was as easygoing as Aldrin was serious. Collins was accessible as Armstrong was remote. Collins was the only one of the crew who professed no love of machines. In fact, he barely tolerated the computers that had taken over spaceflight. The instructors would hear Collins' voice from inside the simulator say, quote, All I do is punch buttons, end quote. 
Collins' taste ran toward fine wines and good books. He dabbled in oil painting and cultivated roses in his Houston garden. Two reporters faced with Armstrong's inscrutability and Aldrin's technical relentlessness, Collins was a breath of fresh air. He fielded their queries with good humor. His face seemed to say that, yes, these are interesting questions. When asked, he did his best to explain his two crewmates. He spoke of Armstrong's towering intelligence and his sly wit. As command module pilot, Collins' training was different from that for the lunar module and the lunar EVA, and was sometimes done without Armstrong or Aldrin even being present. In truth, Collins admired Armstrong and Aldrin for their brilliance and their technical skills and felt fortunate to be flying with them, but he wished he knew them better. He lamented the fact that the three of them only discussed technical information. Even after months of training, Collins felt he barely knew Neil and Buzz. But Collins understood that close friendship was not required to fly a good mission. What was required, in his case, was knowing how to rescue Neil and Buzz if they got into trouble during landing or the ascent from the lunar surface. Collins compiled a book of 18 different rendezvous schemes for different scenarios, including where the lunar module did not land, or launch too early or too late. This book ran for 117 pages. Even if he never needed his rendezvous cookbook, Collins would have to take care of docking the command module with the lunar module, then removing the docking mechanism from the connecting tunnel. For the latter task, there was a long and opaque checklist he had to perform, and if he couldn't get the probe and drogue out of the tunnel, he was supposed to get out the toolkit and dismantle it. In his book, Collins wrote that he couldn't even repair the latch on his screen door at his home. During the spring of 1969, Collins felt the eyes of the world upon him as he never had before, and his labors were tinged with anxiety. He also knew that Apollo 11 was putting a great strain on his wife, and that was something he wanted to stop as soon as possible. When Deke Slayton offered to put him back in the rotation for a landing mission, Collins declined. He had decided that Apollo 11 was his last flight. During his day of solo flying around the moon, Collins never felt lonely, although it has been said that not since Adam has any human known such solitude. Here's Mike answering the question if he will be busy while alone in the command module. Yes and no. I hope I'll be very unbusy. I have uh, two roles to play. First, I uh, act as the passive target vehicle, and in the event that everything is working perfectly within the LEM, then uh, I am not unduly busy. I have many chores to do, and I, uh, I prepare to, uh, to take an active role in bringing the two vehicles together. However, as I say, provided the LEM works uh, and can, its radar is working properly and it's capable of making each and every maneuver uh, uh, leading up to the rendezvous and docking, then my job is, uh, is essentially a quiescent one. 
In fact, during the 48 minutes of each orbit that Collins was out of radio contact with Earth, the feeling, he reported, was not loneliness, but rather awareness, anticipation, satisfaction, confidence, almost exultation. However, in a July 2009 interview with The Guardian, Collins revealed that he was very worried about Armstrong and Aldrin's safety. He was also concerned that in the event of their deaths on the moon, he would be forced to return to Earth alone and as the mission's sole survivor be regarded as a marked man for life. After spending so much time with the command module, Collins felt compelled to leave his mark on it. So during the second night following their return from the moon, he went to the lower equipment bay of the command module and wrote, quote, Spacecraft 107, alias Apollo 11, alias Columbia, the best ship to come down the line. God bless her. Michael Collins, CMP, end quote. After Apollo 11, NASA Administrator Thomas Paine told Collins that the Secretary of State, Rogers, was interested in appointing Collins to the position of Assistant Secretary of the State for Public Affairs. After the crew returned to the U.S. in November, Collins sat down with Rogers and accepted the position on the urgings of President Richard Nixon. Collins retired from NASA in 1970. In 71, he was appointed a director of the National Air and Space Museum. He held the position until 1978 when he stepped down to become undersecretary of the Smithsonian Institution. Collins completed the Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program in 1974, and in 1980 he became vice president of LTV Aerospace in Arlington, Virginia. He resigned in 1985 to start his own consulting firm called Michael Collins Associates. He retired from the U.S. Air Force Reserves with the rank of Major General. Collins wrote several books, including his autobiography in 1974 entitled Carrying the Fire and Astronaut's Journeys, in 1976, he wrote Flying to the Moon and Other Strange Places, and that book was later revised and re-released in 1994 as Flying to the Moon, an Astronaut's Story, a children's book on his experiences. In 1988, he wrote Liftoff, the story of America's adventure in space, a history of the American space program. In 1990, he wrote Mission to Mars, a non-fiction book on human spaceflight to Mars. Along with his writing, he has painted watercolors, mostly relating to his Florida Everglades home, or aircraft that he flew. Very few are space-related. Until recently, he did not sign his paintings to avoid them increasing in price just because they had his autograph on them. Collins was a longtime trustee of the National Geographic Society and presently serves as trustee emeritus. He is also a fellow of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots, 
and a fellow of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. In 2008, Collins was inducted into the Aerospace Walk of Honor. He has also been inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame and the International Space Hall of Fame. Collins was awarded the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, Air Force Distinguished Flying Cross, Air Force Command Pilot Astronaut Wings, Presidential Medal of Freedom, and Congressional Gold Medal. Together with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, he received the Collier Trophy in 1969 and the Hubbard Medal of the National Geographic Society in 1970. The International Astronomical Union honored him by naming an asteroid after him, 6471 Collins. Collins and his Apollo crewmates were the 1999 recipients of the Langley Gold Medal from the Smithsonian Institution. Also, like the other two Apollo 11 crew members, he has a lunar crater named after him. He also received the Harmon Trophy in 1969. Collins lived with his wife, Pat, in Marco Island, Florida, and Avon, North Carolina, until her death in April 2014. Collins' autobiography is dedicated to her. I want to conclude this episode with a 2008 interview of Mike Collins giving his thoughts on the future of spaceflight. Well, I think the main thing about flying in space that has stuck in my memory is the, um, the idea of getting away from the Earth at a very great distance, quarter of a million miles, whatever, and then looking back and seeing uh, a tiny little fragile blue and white globe. And, uh, and it makes you think about our earthly problems with a slightly different perspective. The universe is turning out to be such an extraordinarily complex, odd, unusual, different sort of a place. Uh, it was one of the early astronomers, I, I believe Willis Shapley, who said, uh, the universe is, is not only more complex than we know, it's more complex than we can know. There's so many mysteries out there that uh, it's going to act as a magnet. We're going to suck people out into space because people have this curiosity. They want to know about the universe. They want to know more about how it works, how it affects uh, their lives. Um, I think 50 years from now, Mars, of course, will be the next outpost. I think we'll have people uh, living on Mars 50 years from now. What they'll be looking forward to, uh, I have no idea, but I'm sure it'll be uh, fascinating. Salutations from the Everglades. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode 203 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11, Command Module Pilot Mike Collins. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that and more on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. 
Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thanks, Patreon donors, who honored your pledge this month. Had one afterthought about this week's episode. When I was a child, I felt sorry for Mike Collins because he didn't get to land on the moon. Now, as an adult, I think about it, and he had a pretty great life, and he did make it 99.9% to the moon, and he was excellently suited to pilot the command module alone while Buzz and Neil landed. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check those out. I was uh, pleased to receive two donations to support the podcast over the past week. Richard C. from the UK donated at the Mercury level. Thank you, Richard. And Per Hansen from Norway donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji because it is his second year of donating. Sadly, we lost one Patreon, so the number went back to 105, and our overall number of donors is at 145 with a goal of reaching 300 donors by the end of the year. Please remember, the Space Rocket History Podcast is completely listener-supported. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. If you're enjoying this content and can afford to help, please consider donating. Keep in mind, you don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a $1 per month donation. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the home page and click on the links on the right side of the page. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. I was pleased to see the podcast received one new 5-star rating on iTunes last week. I would like to thank CMA Skylane for the kind review and the all-important 5-star rating. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media, and thanks to those who've already done so. This is the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to uh, stick around and listen to my off-topic thoughts, and I'm also going to tell you about my experience watching a launch. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue the biographies of the crew of Apollo 11, with Buzz Aldrin. In podcast news, March set a record for downloads. It was a significant increase. It was the highest month so far. In March, the podcast was downloaded in 101 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries with the most episode downloads in March. Number 1, U.S. Number 2, the U.K. returns to second position. And Germany drops to third. Australia, four. Canada, five. Sweden continues at sixth place. Japan takes a big jump up to number seven, with Ireland following extremely close at eight. New Zealand, number nine. And France, number ten. In personal news, last week I told you about my first Falcon 9 launch, and this week I want to tell you about the United Launch Alliance Delta IV WGS launch that I witnessed at the Kennedy Space Center. We had spent the day at KSC, which was absolutely fantastic. Anyway, it was Saturday, March 18th. 
The launch was scheduled for 7.45 p.m. My venue was the Space Center next to the new Atlantis exhibit, which is absolutely amazing. Anyway, from my spot, you could not see the launch tower. There was quite a few people there. A lot of families with kids running and playing as we waited to see the launch. Then, a technical issue delayed the launch. Everyone was hoping that it would not be scrubbed, and they were sticking around to wait it out. And of course, I was too. 34 minutes later, at 8.18 p.m., the Delta IV lifted off. I could see the glow of the thrust lighting up the roadway as the rocket rose above the trees. Now, for this vehicle, the flame was more white than the Falcon 9's orange color flame. About a minute later, we heard the uh, sound of the engines as the rocket continued its flight. Since it was dark, we could see the flame for quite a while. Then, it was gone, and I felt fine. <laughs> Friends, if you ever get a chance, you need to see one of these launches. I believe the best view is from the Saturn V complex. That is where I saw the historic Falcon 9 recycled first stage flight, which I will tell you about next week. Okay, that's all I have for this week, and I hope to have episode 204 up by next Thursday. So long for now.